uh, as Parker said, uh, and I appreciate him singing that song uh, that goes along with uh, Psalms 25 uh, tonight. And I apologize, I've got some water here with me. I don't ever, I don't know if I ever do that, but I'm going to have to tonight. So if you see me drinking water, I, I apologize. Uh, but this song uh, tonight <coughs> that we're uh, uh, going to be discussing it. It's, uh, David is pictured in this psalm as a, uh, he's putting once again his trust in God. We see that he has many conflicts. Uh, uh, we think about his great transgressions that he's had, but we also think about his, his repentance and his deep distresses. They're, they're, they're all here. So I think we see a, I think we're going to see in this psalm the very heart of David. Um, you know, the Bible says that David is a man after God's own heart, and I think tonight we're going to see in this psalm uh, that very heart as he pours it out. Uh, David, as we've seen many times in the psalms, um, he, we always see his confidence in God, and we see, we, we see kind of a, a progression in each of the psalms where uh, David does cry out to God. Uh, he does... Uh, think about his situation. He thinks about what he's going through. But he realizes, I think, and I think that's very important for us, he realizes who he is. He realizes how important it is to depend upon God, that it's not his goodness, it's not his ability. Everything that he can do, everything that's, that he's overcome, he gives credit to God. And, and he realizes how important God is in his life, and I think that's something that we all can, can, can take from it. And I think that, once again, shows his heart. Even, even with the sins in David's life, uh, it, it's not what defines him. It's not who he is. I, I think we see through these psalms truly who David is. Now, it's not an excuse for his sins. Uh, David suffers the consequences of those sins. But we also see his repentance and how close he is to God, even going through those, those consequences. And I think sometimes when we go through consequences of sin, sometimes it can cause us to, to get farther away from God. Sometimes we can get bitter. But we've got to realize forgiveness doesn't mean consequences won't happen. And that's exactly uh, what we see with David. He always uh, realizes his place, and I think that's... Uh, uh, very commendable. But let's look at verses 1 and 2. Uh, it says, To you, O Lord. We're going to look at 1 and 2. Do I need to get the Bible? Uh, he says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. On, O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. It's hard to read that without singing it, isn't it? <laughs> After just singing it. So notice what he says here. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I, I think this is an expression. Uh, I, I think he's, he's speaking of surrendering, of, of submission, of, uh, of, of waiting upon God. I, I think it's like David is holding out his soul in outstretched hands, as it were. And he's saying, here I am, Lord. I, I'm completely surrendering to you. And I think, once again, it, it, it shows who, who David is. He says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Uh, he's realizing who he is. 
And, and it's nothing without God. And he, he's showing God, I've, I, I'm giving it to you. You're the one that gave it to me, and I'm showing it to you. You know who I am. You know what I'm about. You know what I'm going through, and I lift up my soul to you. But he also says that, he says, oh, my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. As, as David declares his trust in God, he, he, he seemed to speak more to himself, I think, uh, than to God. I think he's telling himself and the things that he's doing, uh, I think he's saying, I, I don't need to be ashamed of what I'm doing. I, I don't need to be, uh, I, I, and I think it's more of, you know, when you think of ashamed, sometimes I think it, it, it's embarrassment. It's almost like David is saying, okay, I don't have to be embarrassed for what I'm doing. But I think it goes farther than that. I, I think he's talking more about uh, disappointed. Um, He's telling himself, I, I don't have to be disappointed because he's, he's crying out to God. He's lifting up his soul. He says, I trust in you. And because I trust in you, I'm not going to be disappointed. And there's a lot of things here uh, and today that we can put our trust in. Do we ever get disappointed because we did? David here is saying, I, I don't have to be disappointed. I don't have to be ashamed. It's not going to come to a point where I'm going to regret trusting in you. I, I'm not going to regret that fact. And I think that we can uh, uh, kind of relate to, uh, to David in that, or we should. Uh, I think, again, it's more of uh, him, him telling himself, uh, not only does he trust in God, but he also expects the reward of that trust. He knows he's not going to be disappointed at the end. No matter what he's facing, no matter what he's going through, no matter what he's doing in his service to God, there's not going to be a disappointment on that end. We can never go wrong in service to God, can we? No matter what goes on in our lives, we can never go wrong. If we're striving to be on his path and striving to trust in him, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, what we go through, we're not going to be disappointed in the end. We're not going to be ashamed in the end. And I think, again, it shows David's heart. Even in the distress he finds himself in, he, he's realizing that with all said and done, God's the only one he can truly trust in anyway. There, there's not anyone else for him to truly put his trust in that's going to deliver him uh, like God is. Then he says this, Let not my enemies triumph over me. Now this gives some... I think context to the psalm, like many others, I think it's written when David was in distress, uh, in, a, in a time of trouble, when he faced enemies who wanted the worst for him. And he says, let not my enemies triumph over me. So he, 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 he's bearing his soul to God. He's telling God that he's trusting in him, and he's telling himself, I don't have to be ashamed. I'm not going to be disappointed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. He, he, he's confident in what he's facing. And I really like, I don't know about you, reading the Psalms and studying the Psalms has, um, has really helped me in my prayer life. Uh, I think I find myself praying different uh, as we go through this song. Um, I think there's things I'm not, um, I don't think afraid's the right word, that I'm not... Uh, cautious about praying now i just bear it to god i, I bear it all out there uh, what i'm going through what i'm facing what i'm because sometimes in my mind i think well god he, he doesn't need to be concerned with this this is something trivial or this is something just me he's got more things to worry about 
But David wasn't afraid and he even wasn't ashamed to, to bear it all out to God, the things that he was facing and the things that he was going through. But notice verses 3 through 5. He says, Indeed, let no one who waits on, the, on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Now notice, he starts out, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. I think the idea of wait uh, on you, I, I don't think it's something uh, passively here. I, I, I don't believe David is saying, okay, Lord, I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting on you to see, see what you're, you're going to do. And uh, he says, let none that wait on you be ashamed. I don't think he's saying, okay, I'm just not doing anything. I'm just standing here. I'm waiting on you, and I, you're not going to disappoint. I don't believe that's what David is saying. I believe when he's saying, I, I don't need to be ashamed waiting on you, I think he's talking about his service, waiting as, as a waiter would wait. I think he's talking about, I'm, I'm waiting on God, I'm, I'm serving God. And the things that I do to serve God, as we talked about, we don't have to be ashamed of that. We're not going to be disappointed in that. Everything that we do is going to be for his pleasure. Everything that we do is going to be his will. And it's going to turn out the way that it should turn out. And he says here, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Now, David included himself among those who wait upon the Lord, but also knew that others did also. He knew that there were others that did the same thing. And again, it goes back to our service with God. If, if we're serving God, I don't think we're ever going to be disappointed. I don't think we're <coughs> ever going to be disappointed in anything that we do. Um, and I think this biblical idea of a shame, I don't think it's, again, I don't think it's not primarily anyway, embarrassment, though sometimes I think it is used that way. I think the primary idea is that that being let down or disappointed or having trusted in something. And here's, here's a couple examples of this. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, it says, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Notice it says, Now hope does not disappoint. And actually, the same Greek word is the same one that was used in the shame here in Psalms 25. So our hope, what do we hope for? We hope, you know, that's what faith is, isn't it? Faith is a substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So my faith in the substance of things hoped for and that evidence of something I don't see, Paul is saying here, I'm not going to be disappointed in that. I'm not going to be disappointed at the end and find out that I've hoped in the wrong thing. And it's not a hope as far as wishing. You know, sometimes we use hope and wish the same way. It's something totally different. Well, if I wish something, well, I think it may happen or not. Hoping is anticipating it truly happening. And I think that's what uh, uh, Paul is talking about here in Romans. In Isaiah 49, in verse 23, uh, it says, Kings shall be, uh, be your foster fathers, their queens your nursing mothers, they shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. And Isaiah is saying the same thing as he talk, the Lord talks about here. He says they're not going to be ashamed. They're not going to be disappointed 
in the things in which they do. And I think as Christians, that goes a long way for us to think about that. Sometimes we can grow weary. Sometimes we can get kind of downtrodden. We can get depressed. We can think, well, what's the use? We're saying here that we've got to keep up what we're doing and realize we're not going to be disappointed in the end. Just keep trucking. Just keep going. One foot in front of the other, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Matter of fact, we're walking in that light, and we're not going to be disappointed in doing it. But he does say this, let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without a cause. Now, there is another side to the coin here. He says, okay, here's the ones that wait and that serve on the Lord, but the ones who aren't doing that, doing the opposite, that is serving treacherously, now let them be disappointed. Let them be ashamed because their end is not going to work out like they think it's going to. And David is actually praying that it not. He says, but let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without a cause. I mean, David's getting right to the point here. Okay, I know what the righteous do. I know what those who serve you, that uh, if they're serving you, I know how it's going to turn out with them. But here's what needs to happen to those who deal treacherously. And I think David's able to say this because he's seen that. He's seen what has took place. He's he's, uh, sung this and prayed this to God before in the Psalms about let those who deal treacherously or those who work these wicked plans. Matter of fact, he said in one Psalm that let the plans that they lay out for the righteous to destroy them, let the same thing happen to them that do it. Let them fall into their own trap. And I think he's saying the same thing uh, when it comes to that here. He says, uh, show me your ways, teach me your paths, Lead me in your truth. Ooh, that hurts swallow. <clears throat> this, uh, this shows here that uh, though David longed for um, public vindication, as it were, uh, he was not haughty and proud about it. Notice what he says again. Show me your ways. Teach me your path. Lead me in your truth. If he needed guidance or correction, he's telling God, I need you to give it to me. If I need to be corrected or if I need to be put back on the right path, I need you to teach me your paths. And and I like how he puts this. He he doesn't see God as someone who um, just puts you in one place or the other or someone who beats you into one place or the other. He's seeing God as someone who teaches so someone can be on their path. And I think that's a, that's a pretty big distinction, I think, that he's making. Um, because when we think about God, we've got to realize, here's what God does for us. All God does is show us and, and teach us through his word, this is what you do to be on this path. Then it's up to us whether we do it. He's not going to force us to, and that's what David is saying here. First, show me your path. Show me your ways. Teach me to be on your path. Then lead me in your truth. And John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So David is saying, the only way that I can be on your path and really even know about your path is if you tell me or if you show me and you teach me and, and, and it's guided by your truth. The truth comes from you. It, it, it's your path. And I think that's a, a, that's a pretty, big, uh, pretty big statement that he's making there. He says, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all 
the day long. Um, because David had received salvation from God, it, it, it made him want to wait upon the Lord uh, all the more. It, it made him wanting to do uh, all that he could uh, to serve God. And I think, uh, and that, that should be the same thing, uh, the same thing with us. We need to be able to do that uh, also. Look at verses 6 through 7. <clears throat> he says, Remember me, O Lord, your, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord. So he starts out here, remember, O Lord. David asked God to remember uh, his grace and his goodness. Uh, he looks at God and realizes the good things and the, the grace that has been extended to David, which, uh, what is grace? We think, you know, when we, we talk a lot about grace, grace is really instruction. If it wasn't said we're saved by grace, well, absolutely we are because we're saved by God's instruction. God's instruction is, okay, the gift is of grace. I don't do anything to merit it. God gave us these instructions. Then what I have to do is follow those instructions. So David is telling God, you remember that. You remember your goodness. Um, and you remember your grace that you, uh, that you are given. First he described them as tender mercies. Then he used the plural of the uh, word loving kindness. And, and I thought this was interesting. Uh, as I looked up and looked up how David wrote this, looks like to me he realized God's loving kindness was so great he couldn't say it in the singular form. That that's how great his loving kindness was. He, he starts out and says, okay, remember, O oh Lord, what? Your, your tender mercies, your loving kindness, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth. So David goes from, okay, remember something. What are you going to remember? Remember your goodness, your tender mercies, and your loving kindness. What David doesn't want God to remember is the sins of his youth. So after immediately asking to remember something, David then asked God to forget. He wanted God to forget his own youthful sins. Um, and in a sense, I, I, I guess, forgive them is what he's saying. And he wanted God to remember... Uh, his, his own faithfulness in times. You know, it's one thing for, and, and I think this is a hard thing for a, a lot of Christians. You know, it's one thing for realizing we have sin. It's another thing of admitting that sin and repenting of that sin and knowing that God forgives and forgets. He, he goes on. But the problem is, it's hard for us to do that, isn't it? We still remember that. I know David is still suffering the consequences of his sin. His sin is still before him. Matter of fact, uh, he, he said that, what was it, Psalms 51? He said his sin is always before him. So he, he knows, and he told God, against you and you only have I sinned. He, so he realized what sin can do, and he realizes the result, the consequence of sin, realizes his sin's always before him. So David's telling God, don't remember my sins, because David is saying, I, I remember them enough for all of us. So he realizes how loving, kind God is in doing that. But David still knows 
the place that he was in. And if it wasn't for God, he wouldn't have that forgiveness. He says, for they are, uh, of course he said, they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth. He said, according to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord. These are, I think, strong expressions of David's humility and, and even repentance here. He has to be remembered not on the basis of merit, but on the basis of mercy. Is there anything that we can do to earn uh, God's mercy and goodness and grace and forgiveness? We don't earn that. I can't, I can't work my way. I can't do enough good. The Bible tells us that even if I do everything right, all the goodness I do is still like filthy rags. I can't do it on my own. That, that's the great thing of God. I, I, there's nothing that I can do aside from him showing me his way, as David says here, him teaching me his path, and him helping me in that process. If God didn't do that, I wouldn't have the opportunity to do that. So it does come from God, and he's saying here, it's not my goodness. He said, remember this because of your goodness, not my goodness. I, I don't want you to, to do these things because of who I am, but because who you are. And again, I think this really shows David's heart as he's pleading to God here. He says, for your goodness sake, O Lord. So David is not thinking it's himself that's righteous, himself that's holy. He realizes that it's God that is. Notice verses 8, excuse me, 8 through 11 here. It says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. He says, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners. David's observation here was, uh, I don't think it was learned through um, simple logic, I don't believe. Um, I think it's just as logical for God to judge and destroy sinners. But here again, I think David is making the distinction of how he sees God and how he knows from what he's seen from God who God is. That's not who God is. God is one that will teach sinners. It's not just about destroying them, it's about teaching them. And give them the opportunity to choose. You know, when Christ came, he didn't force anybody. He said, I came to seek and save the lost. He said, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinner. If you think you're righteous already, what is it that God can do for you? If I don't think I need anything, there's nothing that they can do. Or nothing that he's going to do. Except make it available. Then I have to choose whether to do it. <coughs> David... David says here that, that God is one that teaches sinners, that, that God is good, he's upright, and the goodness can be a benefit of sinners instead of a destruction. Um, God is a God of wrath, and we don't want to face God's wrath. So what do we do? We see his goodness. We see his grace. We see his tender mercies. We see his loving kindness. How do I know he's all these things? Because I have his word. His, his word shows us that he's good. His word shows us that he loves us. His word shows us that he's willing to teach us his past. 
But the question is, are we going to follow those? The humble he guides and the humble he teaches. David knew there was a particular kind of sinner that received the instructions and goodness of God. Um, what are those? Ones that's willing to do it. David was one that was willing to do it. We can say, well, David sinned, yeah, but what did David do? When it was brought before him, he knew it. When he was confronted with it, he admitted it. He was humble enough to do that. And that's really what it boils down to when it comes to sin. Are we humble enough to turn from it? If we're not, then God's goodness doesn't mean anything to us. God's loving kindness doesn't mean anything. His tender mercies doesn't mean anything. We've got to be willing to turn. And David knew that there was a special group of, of, of people that, that would do that. And that's the humble. And God, that's why God resists the proud because the, what else is he going to do? The proud is actually resisting, uh, resisting him. Um, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies, he says. Um, again, this is a remarkable, uh, I think, promise. Uh, the conditions are that one stay in God's covenant. Uh, stay in his path. If I'm out of his path, then where does that lead? I'm off over here astray. I'm, I'm not in the path that I should be, even though he's taught me, even though he's showed me, even though he's done these things. But that's where his mercy and truth is. They're not found over here. The mercy and truth is that they're available for me to come over here to that path. He didn't have to show me the path. He didn't have to provide the path. But that's something that he did. And again, I think it's something that, that David uh, recognizes here. Um, notice he said, when we think about the paths of the Lord... Uh, I noticed one person when I was looking at different things on this was describing it like wagon wheels going through soft ground, how it makes ruts, and it's noticeable, and there's, there's, it's very distinctive, and, and, and there's no way to not see that. He said that's the way God's paths are. They're in such a way that where you can't help but see them, but you have to choose if you want to follow in them. And God leads us on the best, best path. He, he takes it to such a way where he knows what the best path is. He knows where that path is going to end up. And again, it's up to us uh, whether we're going to follow it. I haven't asked yet. Anybody got any questions or comments thus far? I don't mean to be as mundane tonight, I guess. But we'll get through this as we can. <clears throat> he says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity. For it is great. I think once again we see a strong expression of David's humility. Uh, David recognizes how sin is. Does this mean that David is like Paul, that he considers himself the chief of all sinners? I think in essence we all can say that, can we? It, it, sin is what separates us from God. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says it's, it, it, it's sin that separates us. So if it separates us, it's great, isn't it? It, I mean, as far as a, it, that's a huge sin. If it, if it brings us from God, then that in itself is a huge sin. Someone said this, our sin is great. Our sin is great when we consider against whom it is committed. 
Our sin is great when we consider that it is against a just and fair law. Our sin is great when we consider it is committed by those made in the image of God. And our sin is great when we consider the amount of our sin. So when we start thinking about sin itself, and, and I think we a lot of times tend to want to categorize it. Uh, people say, well, all sin's the same. Well, that's not true. Consequences are different. Uh, there's different consequences for our sin. But sin in itself is the same because no matter what the sin, that separates us from God. And I think for us to be humble as David was here and, and to be that close to God, I think we have to realize how great our sin is. But I think sometimes we just think, well, it was just a little sin, so God doesn't care about that. Well, how many little sins does it take to make a big sin? You know, how many, if I'm, uh, if I take one step away from God, well, I'm one step away from God, aren't I? You know, you start thinking of it in terms of, of that, then one step's too many. And I have to make sure that I'm doing all I can not to have that. Now, it's strange, but a, a, a true spiritual logic that David makes. He says, pardon my iniquity for, for it's great. Now, we can only imagine a, uh, uh, can you imagine a, being in a, a criminal court and the judge asking you to give an account for yourself and you tell the judge, I want you to pardon me, but the reason I want you to pardon me is because my crime is severe. My, my crime is great. And based on that, I want you to pardon me. Now, how would that go over? Is that a good defense? But that's what David says. He says, pardon my iniquity for it is great. David recognized and even admit that my, my iniquity, my sin, my transgression is huge. So I need you to pardon me. I need you to pardon me based on that. David realizes, now what sin in particular is he talking about? I don't know. <coughs> if you go read Psalms 51 as he goes through that, I, I, I think it's interesting how David describes that. Uh, when, he, when he's going through that repentful psalm, and he, he talks about, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, think about Bathsheba. Think about Uriah. Think about all the things that David lied, murdered, adultery, all these things. You think, well, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. But David says, against you and you only have I sinned. You ever thought about that? Why does he say it that way? Is all sin against God? If I was to sin, if me and Jimmy's having issues and I sin against Jimmy, am I sinning against Jimmy or am I sinning against God? Now, I may have issues and I may have things against Jimmy and that we have to work out, but my sin ultimately is against God because sin is what separates me from God. The only way I know about sin, the only way I know what sin is, remember, that's what the law did. The law couldn't forgive, but the law made you aware of sin and it showed you the boundaries what did jesus coming do what did the new covenant do not only did we already know what the sin was we see where the freedom of that sin is 
And we see what, what the cost of that sin is. And we see what that sin does. It's missing the mark. It's transgression of the law. It's, it's, it's uh, uh, separation from God. So I think David is correct when he talks about his sin is great. He talks about how against you, you only have I sinned. Um, I think there's really no other way to see it and see it in the right way to really grieve over our sins to realize that they're against God and that they are great no matter what they are. Uh, <clears throat> notice verse 12 through 14. I don't know if we'll get through this or not. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Now, he goes through several things here. Who's the man that fears the Lord? He shall teach them. David here has the idea of a, a reverent fear of God. He said, who is the man that fears the Lord? He's asking question. He shall teach them. If, if, if you've got a healthy, reverent fear of God. Now, it's not a fear where we're just scared to death of God. The Bible says God doesn't put a spirit of fear in us. It's, it's not about that. It's about a reverent fear, about knowing who God is, what God's able to do, what he does for us, and, and what could happen at the end. I think we have to have that kind of fear. He says, he himself shall dwell in prosperity. David describes the earthly uh, material blessings that uh, often come to the humble and reverent. And there are blessings that come with that. There are things that uh, we can even see materially because of being humble um, and sometimes we see that uh, in our lives but I like how he says the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant now as I read that I'll be honest that that confused me uh, and I and I thought about the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him what does that mean the secret of the Lord and then I thought about, look at 1 Corinthians 2 and 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So as Paul was saying here, the, the man that's walking, basically what he's saying in the flesh, walking by sight, not by the Spirit, he's not going to understand these things, he's not going to know these things, because he don't want to know them. It's just like... Remember Paul said the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. It doesn't make any sense to them. So when you think about these secret things to those who love God or those that fear God, it's because we want to know them. We're listening to his teaching, the teaching that puts us on that path. If I don't want to hear it, I'm not reverent enough to hear it, I'm not humble enough to hear it and accept it, then I'm not going to know it. So I can't know these things. Well, I'm walking around in the dark. I'm not in the light. Because I've not asked anybody, hey, how do I get out of this darkness? Because I don't care anything about it. And I think that, to me, I think that's what David is talking about here. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. He'll show them his way, if we were humble enough to accept it. But many times we think we're too wise. Remember what he said, Paul also said, he makes foolish the wise. The wise are going to be foolish. They think they're too wise for God. You know anybody like that? They're too smart for the Bible. 
They think that they know it all, that the Bible is just, uh, uh, like one gentleman told me one time, that it was the greatest mythical book ever written. And he just thought he was just too smart for it. And so as he started reading and studying, he really knew it, but knowing it and understanding it and accepting it is two totally different things. And I think that's what David is talking about here. Verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. I think here David is looking up, and I think in his time of distress, he said, the Lord's, I, I, I'm captured in the net, and the Lord is going to pluck me right out of it. Again, I think it's showing his trust in God, that even in the midst of his enemies, God is going to take care of him. Let's go on to verses 16 through 21. It says, Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. I think one key thing that David does here is he doesn't make any request of God without making sure that he is in a right relationship with God. He always kind of counteracts it here or kind of couples it with forgiving his iniquity. If there's anything that you need to straighten me out on, you straighten me out on it. I need you to help me with my enemies. I need you to teach me. I need you to do these things. I need you in my life. My total dependence is on you, but I also understand you're holy and I need to make sure I'm right in your sight. And he always has that as part of it. He's never uh, to where he is arrogant and thinking, well, I'm righteous on my own. I'm good on my own. I'm king. You anointed me. Oh, look how great I am. Just like the, the prayer in, uh, was it Luke 18, with the publican and the sinner, where he basically said, oh, God, aren't you glad I'm on your team? And one just beat his breast and couldn't even look up to him and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a different in attitude. And I think that's what he was, uh, he was doing and striving to do. And then we may get to verse 22. Uh, I had a few other verses, but let's just go to verse 22. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. And I think, once again, it's just David showing that he trusts God, is going to do what he says he's going to do. He's going to keep his promise. And I think this is a, a wonderful psalm. I encourage you to go back and, and look at it and, and study on it.